Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast aimed at better understanding other people and better understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. If you're interested in deception detection, I have several related episodes. For example, I have an episode where I talk to David Zalowski about interrogation techniques. And one where I talk to Mark McClish about analyzing statements for hidden meanings. And quite a few others that are related. As humans, we tend to think that we're pretty good at spotting when people are lying. But research shows that almost all of us are quite bad at telling when people are lying. The existing research shows that, as a group, we're slightly better than chance at detecting deception. We also tend to think that there are certain behaviors that are associated with lying. For example, not making eye contact and having shifty eyes. Or being physically fidgety or stumbling over our words. But research shows that there's almost no reliable information in such behavioral cues. There's a lot of variation. Tim Levine is a communication researcher who has studied deception detection for more than 30 years. He has a book called Duped, Truth Default Theory and the Social Science of Lying and Deception. In that book, he criticizes some of the more popular ideas of deception detection. For example, some of Paul Ekman's well-known ideas. And he presents a new theory called truth default theory, which he says explains a lot of the findings in this area that other theories can't explain well. To quote from his book, Duped, My objectives here are ambitious and radical. I want to start a revolution. I seek to overthrow existing deception theory and provide a new, coherent, and data-consistent approach to understanding deception and deception detection. For more than 25 years, I have seen a need for a new theory of deception and deception detection. Ekman's idea of leakage was hugely influential, but the deficiencies were apparent almost immediately. His focus shifted over time from the leakage hierarchy to a focus on the face and micro-expressions. But my read of the ensuing literature reveals more excuses for why the data do not seem to support his theory than solid, replicated, affirmative scientific support. Interpersonal deception theory is even less viable. It is logically incoherent and I knew it to be empirically false four years before it was eventually published. The new cognitive load approach in criminal and legal psychology does not seem to be the path forward either, for the theoretical reasons identified by Steve McCormick, as well as weak, inconsistent, and just plain odd empirical findings. The need is clear. Existing theory does not cut it. A new perspective is needed. End quote. If you're someone interested in understanding behavior and detecting deception, I think Tim's book is a must-read. If you happen to have read Malcolm Gladwell's 2019 book, Talking to Strangers, you might recall that Gladwell talks about Levine's theories in that book. A little more about Tim, he's a distinguished professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the Chair of Communication Studies. If you'd like to learn more about him, just search online for Tim Levine Psychology and you'll find his website and his Wikipedia page. If you didn't already know, my own main claim to fame is my work on poker tells. I've written three books on poker tells, and I have a video series. I've also worked at analyzing tells for several high-stakes poker players. Two of them were World Series of Poker main event final table players who were playing for millions of dollars and wanted to look for behavioral patterns in their opponents and in themselves. And my work has been called the best work in this area by many poker players, and that includes some professional high-stakes poker players. And some people might assume that because I've worked on poker tells that I disagree with Levine's work or find it disappointing in some way. But I don't. I've always been skeptical about the idea that there's much value from studying behavior in real-world situations like interviews, speeches, and interrogations. When people have asked for my takes on such things, 
I tend to tell them that it's mostly a waste of time to concentrate on such things and that I have very few opinions on such things because there's just simply so much behavioral variance when it comes to nonverbal behavior. There's many reasons why, for example, someone who's innocent might be or seem anxious. I do think there's a lot of interesting patterns when it comes to verbal behavior, the actual content of what someone says, but I'm pretty skeptical about getting a lot of value from nonverbal behaviors. Although I do think there's more use for such things in games and sports. And I also think that poker and most competitive games are completely unlike the scenarios studied in most deception detection setups, and also completely unlike interrogations and interviews. Many of the reliable tells in poker are not even related to deception detection, but more just related to the tendency people have to leak their level of relaxation when they've got a strong hand. And that's not related to deception, but more just about people sometimes feeling good and having fun or just not being as fully stoic and unreadable as they could be. To take another example, some tells in poker are related to being mentally focused or unfocused. And those kinds of tells are also not related to deception. And for another example, some tells in poker are about someone not wanting to draw attention to a strong hand, in a similar way that people in competitive situations don't like to draw attention in general to their treasure, so to speak. And that can manifest as, for example, a player being less likely to stare at strong cards and more willing to look away from strong cards, things like that. There's just a whole lot of differences I could name. And all that said, I always try to make it clear that tells are a small part of poker. I think they can add at most something like 15% to a poker player's win rate, but for most people it'll be significantly less. In this talk, Tim and I do talk a little bit about poker tells, but if you'd like to hear more about that, I'll add some more thoughts at the end. Another reason I find Tim Levine's work so interesting is that we're surrounded by a lot of bullshit when it comes to reading behavior. I'll give a specific example, as I think it's just such an egregious example. There's a so-called behavior expert named Jack Brown, whose main credential seems to be having a lot of Twitter followers. As I'm writing this, he has over 167,000 Twitter followers. You can find him often making extremely confident claims on Twitter about people's behaviors, Claims that are just so off-base from what real research and even common sense would tell us. And people eat this stuff up. Jack Brown is regarded by many on Twitter as an actual expert in behavior, despite just being so clearly wrong and irresponsible in so many ways. To take one example, Jack Brown promotes the very debunked idea that you can tell if someone's being deceptive or not based on the direction of their gaze. So that's a pretty big giveaway right there of the quality of his analysis. He also makes very confident pronouncements about what people's behaviors mean based on very ambiguous and high-variance behaviors that just simply don't contain any interesting or meaningful information. To give one example, he once confidently proclaimed that Trump is, quote, a severe long-term drug abuser, end quote, and that he believed that Trump had a hole in his hard palate from cocaine abuse. He often confidently states that public figures are exhibiting signs of deception and shame and guilt in interviews based on them exhibiting pretty common and very ambiguous behaviors. And the long story short of why so many of the behaviors he draws attention to are not reliable or interesting is that there are many reasons people can be or seem anxious that have nothing to do with guilt or deception. So-called behavior experts like Jack Brown are basically trying to squeeze blood from a stone. They want you to think they have this amazing secret knowledge that gives them amazing insight into people's motivations and what they're hiding. If you'd like to read a piece I wrote about Jack Brown and see some examples of what I'm talking about, just search online for Jack Brown behavior, and the piece I wrote should come up pretty prominently. 
you can find it on my readingpokertells.com site if you want to find it there. It's on my blog. And so Tim Levine's work is important for making us more skeptical of such things and drawing more attention to how little we're able to actually read people. People interested in reading behavior should recognize the uncertainty present in these areas. They should avoid trusting the Jack Browns of the world. We should be skeptical of people who make confident pronouncements that, for example, public figures are lying or hiding something based on reading their nonverbal behavior. Because often those ideas, if we absorb them, will just be reinforcing our biases about people and actually make us worse at navigating the world. For example, when people listen to Jack Brown and they think that they can now read these common and ambiguous behaviors and tell that someone is lying, people will use that to filter the world through their existing biases while feeling that they're doing something sophisticated and smart. It lends a veneer of respectability to our biases. It lends itself to, for example, police interrogators or job interviewers being highly confident about someone's guilt or abilities when they really shouldn't be. These things have real-world negative effects on people's lives. And such things even add to our us-versus-them polarization, in terms of someone being more likely to see a political leader speak and think something like, Oh, see, Hillary Clinton lowered her gaze at that question. I saw Jack Brown talk about that. I know she's lying. These bullshit ideas lend themselves to what I see as one of our biggest problems, being too certain about others and too certain about the world. I think uncertainty and humility are needed more than ever. I think combating bad and simplistic ideas about behavior is important. I think that drawing attention to nuance is important. And so I think Tim Levine's work is important. Okay, here's the interview with Tim Levine. Hi, Tim. Thanks for coming on. Oh, happy to be here. So maybe we could start with how I first learned about your work, which was a study you did about the show Lie to Me. Could you talk a little bit about what that study found? Uh, sure, that's a fun study. First, to lay out just the general experiment. Research participants come in, they do a standard uh, lie detection task where they have to uh, watch several interviews, some of which the people are lying, uh, some of which the people are telling the truth. And those interviews are scored to see how well they do, uh, scored just like a true-false test. In the experiment part of it, uh, people either just did the task normally or uh, one-third of the people, based on random assignment, uh, watched the TV show Lie to Me, which is about a psychologist who can detect lies based on nonverbal communication. It's uh, based on the work of uh, Paul Ekman. And uh, another control group watched a different crime show uh, called Numbers, in which people solve crimes through, uh, it's a math professor who uh, solves crimes through math. And then the third control was just no, not watching any show at all. And uh, what the findings were is there wasn't uh, really much difference between the two groups. If anything, the people who watched uh, Lie to Me uh, were a little worse at detecting uh, deception. Uh, and the show tended to make them more cynical, but it didn't make them any any better at lie detection. And and the reason is, is because uh, nonverbal things just really aren't very useful in lie detection. One of the things you talk about in your paper was you, uh, the show makes a claim. I'm not, I'm not sure if it made it once or, or if it keeps repeating in the show. I've only seen one episode of the show, but the show repeats the claim that people lie really often. Like I think it says three times in 10 minutes. And can you talk a little bit about that and what they got so wrong about that idea? Uh, yeah, they actually used that in their promotional materials and it was on their, on their website. 
And unlike some claims about how often people lie, uh, with the implication that people lie all the time, uh, this particular claim actually has a basis in research, but totally taken out of context. Uh, so the experimented question was, uh, people had to come in and they were told to make a good impression on somebody else. People presumably took that instruction as making unrealistically uh, good impression on other people. So if you come into lab setting and you're told what you understand to be making overly good impression, then then people follow instructions and uh, and do that, and as a consequence, say up to three false things in ten minutes. On the other hand, if you're just like normal, so in the first ten minutes of this podcast, chances are there won't be uh, there won't be any lies probably during the whole thing. Yeah. If you were to ask me how many lies I've told recently, I, I, I mean, I would, I would be hard pressed to, to think of a situation where I lied recently. Uh, so yeah, I think it, it's a very pervasive uh, misunderstanding. It kind of reminds me of that, uh, the common myth that's, that's so often repeated that uh, nonverbal communication makes up most communication. You know, for example, I was just Googling now and saw the, you know, one of the top things was uh, most experts agree that 70 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal. Oh, false. You see that? Oh, that, that is so yeah, wrong. That can, oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, it says that in books. Yeah. It says that in textbooks. Exactly. Yeah. It's wild. It's it's just wild how pervasive these myths are. Uh, you know, do, do you see this, these kinds of things as related? And, and do you see, are there other things in, in this area that you often see uh, repeated, even though there's no, you know, no good reason for them? Oh, yeah. Uh, but before we get there, um, let me give your listeners a little background on where that most communication is nonverbal finding comes from. Yeah, that'd be great. So the actual finding was when what we're doing nonverbally contradicts what we're saying verbally, then people will often believe what is done nonverbally over what people do verbally. But the most communication is nonverbal is just ludicrous because how could we possibly do this podcast <laughs> non-verbally, right? I'm making all these great expressions, right? Communicating very expressively and using all this body language and you can't see it. Mm -hmm. Now you can get the tone in my voice, but if we stripped out the content of the words and you're just hearing the tone of the voice and you're hearing me get a little bit excited about this topic, uh, you, you could take that away, but that would be just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of the message. Most communication is conveyed through the words. Yeah, and well, and that totally relates. Yeah, and I almost didn't realize how much it relates to your truth to default theory until talking about it now. But yeah, it's so, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, yeah, getting back to the uh, one very important point you make in your work is about how important it is that lies are rare and, and understanding that point. So when you're trying to determine if someone is good or not at detecting, deception, it matters a whole lot how many lies are in the mix. And I think you relate this to something you call the, the veracity effect. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that angle. Uh, sure. So one of the oldest findings in lie detection research is something called truth bias. Uh, my good friend, Steve McCornack, uh, coined the term uh, in his undergraduate research. He now works with me at my university. Uh, the idea is that if you see a bunch of communication and you're asked to guess true or false, do you think they're lying or telling the truth? People guess true more often than lie, completely independently of 
what they're, whether they're seeing a truth or a lie. And so this is called truth bias. People guess true more often. So the veracity effect is an idea by a professor named He Sung Park, who saw rather obviously, um, but before she saw it, people didn't really tune into this, that if you think most things are true, then you're going to be right when they are true, but you're going to be wrong when they're lies. So for example, the average across hundreds of studies of lie detection is people are just 54%, a little bit better than 50-50. But if you break it out by truths and lies, people are better on truths. And the more truth biased, the more better they are in truths. Mm-hmm. And they're worse on lies. So accuracy is below 50% for lies. And the more truth biased, then the worse they are at detecting lies per se. And the veracity effect is simply the difference between your accuracy for truths and your accuracy for lies. The consequence of this is that the best predictor of whether you're going to be right in deception detection is the honesty of the person you're talking to. So if you're talking to somebody who's honest and you believe them, you're going to be right. Not because you're good at this, right? But just by chance. Uh, But if they're lying, you're going to be wrong about this. Well, now, if most communication is honest most of the time, then people are right most of the time. And lie detection experiments create a very unrealistic portrayal because lies are much more prevalent in deception studies than they are in the actual world. Yeah, and to tie this back to your lie to me study, the one of the points you make in your book, Duped and, and elsewhere, is that simply by you know if if you're a, if you're in a test situation um, or or just just the fact that we are so prone to believe people, if you give anyone any sort of education, no matter how bad it is about deception training, it, it will it will make them detect lies more often simply because you know, we are prone to believe people. So for example, if you watch Lie to Me, even if the information is bad, you're going to increase your ability to detect a lie a bit just from being more skeptical. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that ties into, you know, maybe the perception that doing any sort of detection uh, training or education can make make it seem like you're, you're actually becoming better at, at, at detecting deception. Yeah, but it almost always comes at the cost of getting more errors. About exactly. Truths. You're not getting better. You're, you're, it just seems that way if you're in an environment where you're, you're being made to find lies, like in a study environment where they're giving you more lies than you find in your everyday life. So it seems like you're getting better at it, but at the cost of, you know, you're actually getting better at the cost of detecting accurately when people are telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So cynicism only uh, works well in an environment where there's a big risk of being deceived about something important. Right. Which isn't the case for our day-to-day lives, which is the the basis of the the truth default theory that we are, there, there's reasons for what, why we have a bias for, for finding things true. And maybe you could, maybe you could talk a little bit about what sets the truth default theory apart. That was, that was one thing that w- it was hard for me to, a little bit hard to understand how this was so, uh, such a revolutionary idea based on uh, differing from the, the previous ideas. So let me talk a little, we already talked a little bit about truth bias and the veracity effect. So let me now talk about how defaulting to the truth is a little different. So in the standard deception detection experiment that's done in the social sciences, people see some collection of truths and lies, and then they're asked do you think this is a lie or do you think it's true? Now, the second I ask you to judge or to make that assessment, 
Now you know this is a lie detection task. But in everyday communication situations, like you're just sitting around listening to a podcast, uh, if the podcast isn't about deception, and maybe even if it is, is that true? Is it necessarily coming to mind unless prompted? Mm. So the idea of the truth default is unless there's something to get you thinking about it, the idea that of truth, falsity, honesty, deception, just don't even come to mind. Mm-hmm. So if I'm showing you now, I do the study a different way, and I'm showing you uh, interaction between two people, and I'm just asking you uh, open-ended, what are you thinking about? The idea that they might, one of them might be lying to the other just doesn't come to mind. This isn't things, people are thinking about what they're wearing, they're thinking about you know, their mannerisms, their idiosyncrasies, they're thinking about the content of what's said. And they just kind of accept it at face value. And it's it's remarkably difficult to, in a lot of circumstances, to knock people out of their just passive belief and, and get them to uh, get them to be skeptical. Mm. Now, there are times when we can be skeptical. You know, we know somebody's trying to sell us something. Uh, we're hearing people we disagree with or unpopular ideas. Then Then suspicion can be triggered. But in much of our daily life, uh, that just doesn't happen. And we, we, we're on this communication autopilot where what we say is honest unless we have a reason not to be honest. And we believe people unless we have a reason, a good reason, strong reason not to believe them. So uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, he's on Park's uh, big contribution, big awareness. Uh, the revolutionary thing was that she realized that all of these studies that were being done we're basically biasing the experiment by asking them, get, getting people skeptical from the beginning by the by the questions. So basically, it was throwing off all the results. Is that is that accurate? I think the statement's accurate. Uh, I think that's more kind of a later implication of her idea. I think she had two really big ideas. First was the idea that accuracy is different for truth than for lies, which is the veracity effect. Related to that, what matters is the ratio of truths and lies in the environment. Uh, that's one of her really important things. And she had another really important thing, which we haven't talked about yet, which is that most lies are detected after the fact. So, so most of the times we do actually detect lies in real life. We're not detecting them in real time based on how people are coming off. But the truth tends to come to light at some later point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like you might have a suspicion that you know once once you're you get into the skeptical realm of thinking someone might be lying and then, but you're not going to really know it's a lie until you actually confirm it with like real evidence or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the nonverbal behaviors and you obviously take a very skeptical stance on the idea that there's much relevant or reliable information to study when it comes to nonverbal behavior in the, in the realm of, uh, you know, detecting lies, detecting deception. And can you talk a little bit about the main reasons for why you believe that, you know, for example, based on the meta-analysis studies and and other things? Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, first off, my position is, is that nonverbal things are incredibly important in how people are perceived. It's what I doubt is the diagnostic value of nonverbal things. That is that they have a set fixed meaning, especially when it comes to truths and lies. Mm-hmm. So almost everybody everywhere believes that you can tell when somebody's lying because of some set of nonverbal things. 
the most common belief, folk belief, is probably that liars won't look you in the eye. And that's been found uh, pan-culturally. That people and, believe that. Yeah. yeah, people everywhere believe that. But mm-hmm. it just has... The shifty eyes thing. Yeah, it just has no validity at all. And so there's been, the last I saw, almost 50 studies of this. And the average difference in eye gaze between liars and telling the truth is zero. And what's more, when you look at, so there's been, you know, decades and decades and decades of research trying to find kind of the magic tell for deception and uh, either linguistic behavior or more commonly nonverbal things. So there's all these studies that look at what liars are doing and what honest people are doing and looking for differences in them. And a lot of studies find that this difference or that difference happens. The trouble is the next study finds the exact opposite thing or nothing at all. So when you plot out findings of all these studies over time, they just don't hold up. And uh, the more they're studied, the less difference, the less the average difference between truths and lies. So you reference meta-analysis. For the listeners who don't know, a meta-analysis is simply a study of studies. So we're looking at trends across a whole bunch of different studies. And what I noticed when I was looking at meta-analyses of nonverbal cues and deception detection is that the more a given nonverbal behavior was studied, the less difference it made in research, which suggested to me that the findings that were there were probably smoke and mirrors. Right. It was reverting to the mean kind of idea. Yeah. It, where the mean was zero. And another, another common uh, conception uh, is that, or maybe it's actually has some truth, is the voice pitch thing, but it seems very slightly reliable, or do you think that's not reliable either? It depends on reliable in what sense. So if we analyzed, you know, a couple hundred people are telling the truth and a couple hundred liars, on average, liars have a slightly higher you know, about uh, two-tenths of a standard deviation higher vocal pitch. But for any, to use it as a lie detection tool in any one person, it's just completely useless. If it's there, it's so just so small. Yeah. So, you know, maybe a baseball analogy. You know, somebody who has a, a 0.3 batting average is more likely to get a hit than somebody who has a 0.2 batting average. But that doesn't mean that the person with 0.3 average is going to get a hit and the person with 0.2 isn't, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and if I was correct, understanding this correctly in your book, I think you were making a point about the difference between something, you know, we, we talk about something being statistically significant. Right. And sometimes that, that seems to be uh, people will interpret that as being actually significant. And it, was I understanding that correctly, that there's some like confusion or language confusion there that that people talk about things that are you know, statistically significant as if they're like very meaningful or something? Yeah, that's an unfortunate term. It's a used statistically. What it means is that a finding of absolutely no difference across a large number of people would be sufficiently improbable to presume that there's something there. So it's a, it's a statement of probability, but it's even worse than that because the math behind it presumes that you're only testing one hypothesis. And the trouble that with modern research is people aren't testing, they're, they're using a probability statement for testing one hypothesis when they're actually testing a whole bunch of things 
statistically. So that that probability doesn't have that meaning anymore. Um, but that's that's like way too statistically nerdy, uh, probably. Uh, is it accurate to say that some people, you know, say lay people will see something about significance and think like, oh, it's significant, which might explain like how some of these, you know, misperceptions about nonverbal behavior get started in the in the common audience? Do you think that's? Yeah, that's that's accurate, I think. But it's also accurate that, you know, 90 percent of uh, uh, professional researchers or 95 percent also think that. Mm, OK. Right. So it's, it's not just the. You know, it's not just lay people and it's not just the media. Mm-hmm. These, you know, kind of misunderstandings are are more widespread than that. What is it? Does that get into the, the replication uh, errors area of, of people, you know, interpreting the, the results of things too, too confidently or, or mistakenly? Uh, that's that's my read on it. So uh, social sciences are undergoing a huge replication crisis where uh, findings uh, and, you know, the best peer-reviewed journals just aren't holding up uh, at a really disturbingly low rate. And findings are almost always small. You know, it's not just deception cues. Findings are generally smaller when they're studied again. My read on why that's the case is this opportunistic use of statistics. They're, they're using this statistical idea of significance in in a way that really is not not justified probabilistically. A small note here, if you'd like to learn more about what Tim was talking about, you can Google the research replication problem. Long story short, though, what Tim was referring to was the fact that if you collect a whole bunch of data, you end up finding some correlations in the data that may seem interesting, but may just be due to randomness and the fact that you've gathered so much data that some random correlations are likely to be present. And that aspect can help explain why some findings are hard to replicate later. I actually talked to a previous guest about this, if you're interested. I talked to Brandon Shields about his poker tells research, and we spent some time talking about the problem of finding illusory correlations in data and how one way to combat that is with pre-registering your research, which requires you to write down your predictions beforehand so that any correlations found are things that were theorized about and less likely to be a random illusory thing. Okay, back to the interview. So getting back to why you know it is so hard to find reliable nonverbal behaviors tied to deception. I mean, I think basically it's not surprising to me because humans are just good at deceiving. I mean, it's not surprising that we have control over our behaviors in, in, in a pretty good way. I mean, most of us. Uh, so I think, I think that helps explain it. I, I think the question that, you know, you sometimes see the question, well, why is it so hard to detect deception? It's almost like, well, why would it be easy to detect deception? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that's half the answer. So I think for most of us, but not all of us, uh, by the time, you know, kind of we get through high school, uh, we're, we're pretty good about telling a lie if we need to. I, I think there are probably a few people out there who can't lie well. I know, I know just anecdotally, if you ask people, uh, some people say, nah, I can't do this. Uh, and I, I suspect they can't and they don't lie very much because they, they know they can't. Uh, but I think there's another reason, too, and this is really gets at the heart of the idea of the truth fault, is that there's probably no single thing more important to humans than our ability to communicate. You know, humans are able to uh, share information and pass down knowledge, which makes all our technological and scientific advances 
possible. Uh, we are able to uh, cooperate and work together, which enables all kind of modern production. And uh, it enables us to uh, make friends and form good professional, social, personal relationships, which is incredibly important to our well-being and physical health. Communication only works if you can trust what's communicated. If you have to second guess everything, you can't really learn anything because everything's uncertain. You can't work together because you don't know that you can trust the other person you're supposed to work with. You can't form relationships, right, because you can't trust this person. So if we can't trust other people and what they say, and if communication loses its functionality, and this is just way, way, way too important to us, mm -hmm. we have to believe other people. Because if you did the kind of thought experiment of what it would be like if we didn't believe anything we communicated, we would, we would absolutely, absolutely be lost. You know, if, if you can't trust, you can't get on a plane, right? You can't get in your car. You can't drive through a green light if you don't believe the people on the red light are going to stop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Functioning requires this. So I think it, it's not only that, that people can tell good lies. But it's that we have to believe them as the business as usual. It's not that we can't, mm -hmm. you know, we, there's, we can, suspicion can be triggered. But as our kind of business as usual default mode of working, we have to have to have to take things at face value because otherwise we just immediately get bogged down. It has to be this way. To get off topic a little bit, getting into the like the fake news and, and misinformation area, you know, so many people focus on the the idea that like, oh, we need to get people to believe the the right things, the things that that we believe. And I think that's actually a mistaken goal. I mean, for one thing, it's never gonna happen. This but the second reason is I think we actually just need more people to be as equally skeptical of everything as they are of the things that they're you know, they perceive as biased, you know, for example, for people who doubt the mainstream media and think it's, uh, you know, mistaken and, and, and biased and, and corrupt or whatever, that we need those people to not trust random theories they see on Facebook or whatever, you know, it, we just need more skepticism and, and, and less truth default for, for uh, things across the board. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. No, I, I could not agree more. Uh, so to get back to the, oh yeah, the, the people who aren't good at lying, which, you know, which is a very important point in your work too, you know, when it comes to explaining the slight ability across meta-analysis, the, 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 like the 54% ability to detect deception in these studies, the, the general average, the slightly better than chance average, you know, you point out that some of that is just due to some percentage of the population being pretty bad at, at being, at, at lying, at deceiving. Would you say that's basically because they're portraying the stereotypical behaviors that we have that we associate with lying, you know, like uh, not being good at eye contact or, or stumbling in their words, those, those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's exactly what's going on. There's also another group of people who just come off. So, so the, what I would call the transparent liars, they're transparent when they're telling the truth, you know, they're telling the truth, but they just can't lie. So there's some people who are kind of the opposite of poker face people. You know exactly what's in their hand. And, and we tend to get those people right. But there's this other group of people, which is probably larger, which I call the mismatched folks. 
and they come off differently than they are. So if you think about people who are perfectly honest, but who have social anxiety, or maybe they're a little bit on the autism spectrum. So they're, they're doing these things that people associate with deception, but they're honest. So people tend to systematically get those people wrong. And that's part of the thing that pushes accuracy down towards chance. So there's these transparent liars that makes accuracy better than 50-50. But then these people who are mismatched, who keep us from being very good at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the interesting thing too is, you know, for the people that are that are bad at lying, that that have the stereotypical behaviors and, and are more easily caught in these kinds of studies, it's actually almost meaningless to judge them on a case by case basis because the only in a practical sense, like the only way you would actually be able to catch that person lying in a in a meaningful, uh, reliable sense is if you studied them how they behave when they're telling the truth and how they behave when they're telling a lie. So in other words, in a in a study environment, you might correctly guess that someone who that someone's lying because they're seemingly bad at lying lying, but that could just as easily have been a person telling the truth. So it's almost meaningless in a practical sense. Uh, yeah. And it's even more complicated than that because then you have to have other a lot of other people watching them lying and telling the truth over multiple instances to see that there's regularity in how other people are seeing them. Right. You really need, you really need a, a, a statistical sample size in it to know that like, oh, this person's actually bad at lying and I'm actually finding something versus like, oh, they're just one of the mismatched people or just they have random variations that make some people think they're lying when they're not. You know, they're just, it's so much more complex and requires more study than it seems on the, on the surface. And we have these simplistic ideas of how this stuff works in the, in the popular culture and in our, yeah, in our, in our, uh, in our minds about this stuff and the spread through media and such. But, uh, so, uh, one thing I was, I wanted to ask you about was the, was the Ekman's, uh, truth wizards thing, which seems to be another popular, you know, uh, idea that's in lie to me and, and other places that there are people amongst us who are exceptionally good at, at, at uh, detecting deception. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, Generally, if you don't work with Paul Ekman, who's maybe the kind of the, the biggest name, most famous researcher in the topic area, uh, most academic, modern academic deception theorists and researchers uh, are deeply skeptical of the idea of the wizards. Uh, that said, I'm not 100% sure what to think about them. If the claim is that there's kind of, you know, maybe one in a thousand people who can do this, modern social science isn't very good at dealing with the, you know, the super rare disease or the super fluky sort of person. You know, it's, it's hard to study. It's very hard to study kind of very rare events or very rare people uh, because how do you go about finding them? How do you know it's not just kind of fluky? Uh, I will say I had one of Ekman's wizards contact me one time, and I did uh, I did test them on some of my deception detection materials, and they did amazingly well. Uh, but I don't want to say because of this one person in this one instance that oh now they exist uh, that that wouldn't be you know very good science of me. But at the same time, I I'm reluctant to be as critical of it as some people are. Uh, just just because I think, you know, it's it's easier to test ideas that are, or you can find examples of them easier. 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So one thing in that area, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but someone can be, I mean, I, I, we've been talking so far about nonverbal uh, behavior, and that's a lot different from reading, you know, logical inconsistencies or, you know, uh, what people call statement analysis, which is just examining language for evidence. And I'm wondering, does that, could that have played a role, for example, in the, in the test you did, or was that only nonverbal? In the test I did, if you know what to look for, you can do better than 54%. If you're really familiar with the context, the content can help you, but it probably couldn't help you enough to make this person as good as they were. Uh, On the other hand, right, somebody wins the lottery. You know, so chance fluky things happen. I, I don't think people appreciate how lumpy randomness can be. Right. And then we form perceptions based on those outliers. Yeah. If we flip enough coins, you know, that really truly are fair, there's going to be some point where long streak of heads comes up in a row. Uh, and it's just hard to, hard to sort that out. I've read that there hasn't been much evidence for people being consistently, you know, truth wizardy over time. Am I, am I wrong on that? And why haven't people studied that more, that, that a person is consistently good? Um, well, it's, you know, it, it's hard to do overtime studying. And you're right, that, that, is, the, that is the evidence. Uh, my best thinking is uh, there might be people who are good, but it's because they know a whole lot about the particular circumstances. Mm. So my, my guess is, is that uh, a really experienced uh, financial uh, forensic accountant is going to be much better at spotting uh, lies about financial issues than you or I. You know, particular type of uh, criminal investigators might know a whole lot about this particular genre of crime in this particular area. And that knowledge really helps them use what is said in a, in a useful way. Uh, similarly, people who have really good critical thinking skills are going to be better at spotting logical inconsistencies uh, than, than people who are less, less critical thinkers. But but with, if that, if I'm right about that, what it means is it's not the the uh, financial forensic uh, accountant isn't isn't necessarily going to be good about you know detecting the honesty of their spouse mm-hmm. about non financial things. So uh, getting back to that idea of the you know the the nonverbal versus the you know verbal and the and the statement analysis actually analyzing statements and and logical inconsistencies and sort of psychological aspects of people's language. Do you, do you have much thoughts on, you know, how, uh, cause, because to me, for example, uh, personally, like I've read Mark McClish's book, uh, I know you are lying, which is about statement analysis. And I've written a book about verbal poker tells called verbal poker tells. And that's, that stuff to me is so much more reliable, you know, because it's, it, it's about how people communicate and there is, there can be so much hidden information and in how people communicate and what they avoid talking about, for example. And so it's not, it's not, it's not nearly as ambiguous as nonverbal behavior. It's not to say it's, you know, very reliable either, but it's just to me so much more meaningful and so much more there than nonverbal. And I'm curious if you agree with that. Um, I'm not sure if I do or don't. So one of Ekman's ideas that I really like is the idea of the hot spot which is something that doesn't seem right. And hotspots could be nonverbal 
So, so somebody might be reacting in a particular nonverbal way, or let's say at the poker table, they might be doing something nonverbal, right? That, that strikes you as off or might mean something, uh, or it might be verbal. So if we view these as not as, oh, they're lying or, oh, they're bluffing, but instead is, oh, there's something that I need to dig deeper on or explain or pay attention to, uh, then I think these things have uh, real utility. So in the statement analysis, if it is being used then to go into an interview and ask deeper questions about these areas, then I think that's a fabulous idea. If you were saying that, oh, they're not, they seem to be dodging around this issue, that means they did it. Then I think that's tenuous because it could mean a lot of different things. Right. It's not like, yeah. And to be clear, it's not like you can ever... You know, even for the even if something seems very obvious in, in the verbal things, it's not like you could ever be like, "Oh, that I'm very certain about this." I mean, you might feel you're certain, but you'll still need, uh, you know, some some evidence, which gets you know, which gets into how almost unimportant some of these things are when it comes to like interrogations, because no matter you know, for example, if you're bringing someone in for interrogation, you, you probably have a reason to interrogate them. And your your line your your approach probably won't be that much different. You're just going to keep plugging away at them and, and using the the traditional interrogation techniques, you know, and do your thing. You spotting some nonverbal or verbal thing that makes you think they're guilty probably doesn't make too much of a difference because you are you probably already have good reason to think they're guilty anyway. So I think that that gets into almost the practical, you know, low value of them in, in, in practical interrogation and interview, uh, situations. Would you agree with that? Let me, let me phrase it a little differently. There's actually two things I want to jump off on. First, I think the best practice in the interrogation room is what you try to do is if you don't have evidence already, you want to ask questions where you can kind of nail them down in ways that you can go do more investigation and check if that makes sense. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do if I'm trying to question somebody is I'm trying to get information out of them that I can then use later to investigate and that I can, I can check. Cause if I already have evidence, then I don't need to be really talking to them, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm talking to them because I don't have enough evidence right now. So I'm trying to figure out what I need to go investigate and, and what I can check. But about the earlier point, let's say, um, so as a deception researcher, I notice perhaps to a fault when people are leaving things out or when they're changing the topic on me. And I have this kind of ongoing debate with uh, another deception researcher who does uh, a political deception. And so he's thinking, you know, you got a reporter who's talking to a politician and the reporter asks a question. And the politician goes off topic and talks about what they want to talk about. So the question is, is, is that politician, they're, they're definitely being evasive, but are they being deceptive? This other researcher thinks, yes, evasion is deception. They're being deceptive. And I want to say, well, wait a minute. Who gets to set the topic of what we're going to talk about? Why is it that the reporter gets to say, here's our agenda, and the politician has to stick to the reporter's agenda. So, you know, to this point of you need to pay attention when things are being left out or topics being shifted 
or people are being ambiguous. But you will also want to really contextualize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to uh, to be specific about you know interrogations or even poker, because I think that one of the most meaningful tells in interrogation and and in poker actually too is the conciliatory behavior from people who are guilty or bluffing. So, for example, one of the most prevalent things, one of the one of the most telling things in, in interrogations is when the interrogator makes an accusation directly or indirectly. And the person being interrogated basically just acts neutral and, and acts conciliatory and is not, you know, an, an innocent person would would understand immediately that they're being accused and would be defensive. But you see this kind of like subdued, like conciliatory behavior from from someone who's who's guilty just because they don't, you know, their instinct is to not arouse, you know, to, is to be subdued and not arouse anger or or more anger from the the interrogator. Uh, and similar in poker too, you can find these things of you know when someone's bluffing they're uh, less likely to act in an irritating or, or aggressive manner, either verbally or non-verbally to, to their opponent. And, I'm, and this is interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a mix of, of both verbal and non-verbal. It's just a, a demeanor almost. It's a collection of things. And, and so I wanted to throw that in there to say, you know, it's not as if we can't get information from, from these things, but I, I guess the real question is like, you know, if if you're in an interrogation spot, for example, you you likely already, you know, I, I guess that can be that can be very valuable for the investigator to feel that they're they have the right person. But it, obviously, it, you'll need, you know, he, he, that's not evidence. You it might help you in feeling like you're questioning the right person. But yeah, th- I, I want to throw that in there to say there can be meaningful things. I think in the in these areas, uh, absolutely. Uh, but at least in the interrogation point of view, I really urge caution and jumping to conclusions based mm-hmm. on that. At least in my own kind of deception tapes I've created, uh, which mimic interrogation situations pretty well, I think. Honest people respond all different kinds of ways, and so do uh, deceptive people. Some deceptive people definitely go figure uh, best defense is a good offense. Uh, so, you know, there's not everybody responds the same. You know, there, there might be these patterns over large numbers of people. And if you're playing the odds, uh, you're more often right than wrong, let's say in poker. Uh, but you're going to get some wrong because not, not every person responds the same. Right, for sure. And I guess that gets into the impractical aspects of it because, you know, how far are you going to, if the only thing you have is your, is your feeling based on this person's, you know, conciliatory behavior that they're guilty. I mean, that's not really, uh, you know, unless you have much else, that's not really a reason to uh, follow someone as a suspect for very long if you don't have much else going for you, you know? So it's, I think that gets into the, you know, the impractical aspects of it. It's like, how much, how much is is it meaningful really when you get down to it? Yeah. Yeah. There's this huge, huge, huge variability in how humans respond in given situations. Very, very high variance lot us humans. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A small note here. One thing that stands out to me as being pretty consistently meaningful behavior in interrogation situations is the tendency of guilty people to answer pretty straightforward questions with long meandering stories with way too much detail and divergences when innocent people will tend to answer straightforwardly. And this can be seen to be related to conciliatory behavior because we can see that guilty people can have a motivation to attempt to seem likable and cooperative, whereas innocent people just don't have that desire. They just want to answer the questions. I wanted to elaborate on that a little bit more as a way to emphasize the point 
that what people say and how they say it can be interesting to study and pay attention to, even if we can debate how meaningful or actionable specific situations really are. Okay, back to the interview. So I'm pretty skeptical about micro expressions, and, I, and I'm sure you probably are too. Yeah, I see that people often bring that up. Like people ask me like about micro expressions and, and poker and such, and, and, and I've always, I've, I've basically never found them, you know, never based a decision on a micro expression and don't find them generally in poker. And so I've always been skeptical of them, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of like genuine, uh, there are some things where people do like weak means strong and strong means weak things in poker where they're basically conveying the opposite of what they feel and sort of a, a duping, uh, aspect, but that's different from the idea of micro expressions as a, a leak of genuine, uh, emotion or feeling. And I, I assume you'd, you'd just be very skeptical about that too, but I wanted to ask about that. Uh, yeah. So, so the research community is, is very skeptical of, of microexpressions. There isn't strong evidence. I would guess that microexpressions might be, if, if they even exist, and if they are useful, they might be more useful in poker, uh, particularly among novice players, than um, in lie detection. Uh, the reason is, is because, you know, emotion, the emotions you're expressing, the link between those and truth-telling or lying is pretty tenuous. But I could, I could imagine, I'd be, do you ever see somebody who's got like a really good hand who just like lets this little smirk out when they first look at their cards? I'm sure professionals have, have got this under control, but well, I think there is um, the, the, there is I, something, yeah, there is something to that for the yeah for the very beginner level people, and I think and I think I think interestingly, yeah, we could we could talk about that for a while, but the more experienced they are, the more it, the more the opposite things leak out where they're they're like slightly trying to convey the opposite of what they have, but yeah, I think I think you're right at the at the very beginner beginner level stages, there are those kinds of genuine leaks. Yeah, a note here. When I was talking here, I was focused on micro-expressions. There are larger macro-expressions of genuine emotion that occur pretty regularly from all types of players, of all skill levels. For example, it's pretty often a player who makes a big bet with a strong hand will have genuine smiles and things like that. I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. I just wanted to emphasize that I was attempting to talk about just micro-expressions here. Okay, back to the talk. Yeah, so it might be there might be like a kernel of truth to the microexpression thing, but I don't think they're going to be useful at all in lie detection. It's so different. And, it's just such a different environment. Yeah, yeah. And so in poker, can uh, can people mimic micro? Can people fake microexpressions? Well, that's a really interesting question because when when I've thought about this in the past, and I should probably write something up about this, but the thing I've seen is that there's actually these small you know, what, what people would might consider microexpressions, but they're the opposite. And they, you know, so for example, uh, someone who's betting a strong hand would have a quick, a very quick expression, just briefly past their face of having like an irritated look or their brows would be furrowed, you know, almost like a confusion or an irritation, uh, microexpression, but they're, you know, it's the opposite because they're strong and they're, they're, it's almost like they're not even trying to purposely consciously do that, which is an interesting thing because I don't think the, the people who do these things are are always uh you know planning to to fool their opponent it's almost like because you're in such a deceptive uh realm poker is such a deceptive realm and most games are you're automatically just trying to it's even almost like subconsciously convey the opposite of what you have so it's almost this instinctual trying to do the opposite of what you have weak means strong strong means weak which which is interesting because it's you know i think a lot of people would think like oh they're trying to fool me 
but the, the fact that a lot of these things are micro expressions, they, they, they just briefly, and actually in my video series on poker, I have a lot of uh, examples of this. And you just don't find that from bluffers because bluffers are very much aware of what they're portraying. So they're going to have a much more neutral stoic thing. So it means that you're pretty unlikely to detect these things from a bluffer, like detect meaningful things from a bluffer because they are trying to be so stoic and so neutral. And that's, and that's how most people behave. But some people with strong hands will leak out these small, you know, opposite uh, emotion things that, that give them away, really. They're, they're really highly reliable because a bluffer is not likely to leak out these small things of uncertainty or irritation, these small expressions. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting area and it's, 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 it's very interesting. I should, I should write something up about it more official. So, so one strategy, I'm, I'm not a, not a experienced poker player, but so one strategy is to just be poker faced or stoic and be unreadable. Right. So what I would call zero transparency. So there's just no signal there. Right. The other strategy would do, try to be very unreliable and, and throw other people off their games. So you put in some, mix in some real things and some false things and some stoic and just convince everybody else at the table that what they think they're seeing could mean any number of different things. Yeah. And, that, and the interesting thing about that is that that would actually be good. But the, in practice, it's like most people are afraid of looking stupid. So they're afraid of like, and, and this actually plays a big role in poker in it. I, I, we could go on for a while about how poker and other games are so different from like interrogations and interviews. But one of the things in poker is you might think that's a good strategy, but in practice, you'd be like, well, what if I do something and that person reads it as weak, you know, as we, as a weekend and calls me, and then I'd feel stupid for trying all these, you know? So in practice, that explains why people just tend to be, try to be stoic, you know, because it's, it's just more, it's more effort, more conscious, uh, you know, mental load and thought, and you have to think about, am I being balanced on all these spots if I'm trying to be high variance, for, for example, and throwing out this noise? So that, that just helps explain why the, the best approach is to just be as, as uh, stoic as you, as you can. Yeah. So yeah, we got a little bit off topic there. To get back to, to your work, um, one thing uh, you had said, I heard you say in a, in a talk, I think it was a, a podcast, was the, you know, the, the nuance you're bringing to this discussion isn't the most exciting thing because, you know, people do love the sexiness, the, the excitement of, you know, tells in general and the idea that we can, we can read people. And I think the thing you said was, uh, you know, you're not likely to be invited to do a Ted talk anytime soon. (laughs) So, um, I'm I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about like the, the public's perception of, you know, we have this kind of love affair with, uh, behavioral cues, you know, people love shows like lie to me or, or other shows where people are, are, or even poker tells, you know, we, there's this, perception of the public eye that poker tells are really important, you know, and they play a big role in poker when, when, you know, what I emphasize in my work is like, they're a very small part of poker. Like they come up occasionally, you might just use them, you know, once or twice a session to make that that actually changes a a decision. So it's a pretty uncommon thing, but we have this, you know, in the public eye, we have this kind of love affair with behavior and reading people. And uh, do you have thoughts about, you know, what, what attracts us so much to those, those ideas that we can read people well? You know, in part, people always like the little secret, you know, get rich quick uh, ideas. And 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 some extent, maybe, you know, the idea of reading nonverbal communication is a lot like a little mini uh, get rich, easy solution. Mm. It, it has appeal, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure there's, you know, again, use getting into poker. I'm sure there's all these like little, here's the secret to being a great poker player, you know, and you're going to learn it in 10 minutes. There's uh, a lot of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a market for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's probably some of that. 
yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, people, if people feel like they have some secret knowledge that's going to, you know, make them better at their jobs, make them better in, in you know, in their intimate relationships or whatever, whatever it may be, they, they feel like they're getting, you know, an advantage on, on society. I, yeah, I think you're right. There is some aspect of that. Oh, I just went through a, 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 a job training thing where, you know, the consultants come in and they're going to um, teach us how to uh, do difficult communications. And they've got their little consultant sound bites, right? And they, they, I don't know how much money they, they soaked out of my university uh, to do this, but it was, it was just all junk. Uh, you know, I, I would never let them in, in the classroom teaching real communication skills to real uh, tuition paying young adults. But, you know, there, there's a market for this and they're, they're selling it. And, you know, people, people want the uh, easy, easy path to, uh, to something that takes a, a lot of uh, skill and learning and practice. Yeah, there is just so much junk out there, like to name a couple examples, like I was watching some podcast where they were having an FBI behavior expert weigh in on things and you know, the behaviors and interrogation. And I just thought like most of the things he were saying were just so not meaningful and just, you know, could easily have been found in a in an, in an innocent person. And just there, there was, I mean, and compared to the things the person was saying, it was just like, this is so, the nonverbal stuff is just so uninteresting and, and non-reliable. I'm just like, why even focus on that? And and just watching interrogations in general, I'm like, all the things that stand out as interesting are just based on the, what the person is actually saying, not the nonverbal stuff. But uh, yeah, let me change direction. And I think one really interesting thing to me, one surprising thing to me is just how much people dislike lying. And it's like we have a real aversion to directly lying to people. And this helps explain some of the the verbal behaviors, verbal indicators in interrogation situation and in games like poker, you know, for example, even someone who's, who's murdered someone often doesn't, doesn't seem like they want to come right out and say, I, you know, I didn't kill that person or directly lie. And they instead use like hedging language or avoid making a direct statement. And you can see some of that in poker too. You know, people are, they, they don't like to directly lie about their hand strength when they know it might be exposed later. You know, for example, mm-hmm. someone, who ha- who actually has like a pocket pair of eights is unlikely to say I don't have pocket eights. You know they're they're unlikely to make these direct uh, statements. It's just it's just very rare, and so it's kind of been wild to me that in areas where you'd think lying would be completely understandable, considering the situation. You know whether it's poker where it's allowed to lie, where you're allowed to lie, or when someone's committed a serious crime, you'd think they you know would have no problem lying. In it, but it seems like people still don't like to lie. And, and I'm curious, do you see that if you, if you agree, if you think that is there, that, that tendency to, to avoid lying, is that related to the truth default idea? And is it possible that the, the reason that we so instinctively trust others that the, is that there is some serious deep down aversion for us as social creatures to lie? Is, is there something to that? Uh, yes and yes. So part of the truth to fault is that we are honest. Most of us are honest unless we have reason not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most people are honest, then this makes believing other people very functional and adaptive. But the thing to remember, too, is that lying behavior is not normally distributed across the population. There are people out there that lie a, a great deal and seem to have no problems with it at all. I'm currently working on an essay on something I call bold and shameless lying. So bold lying is when I lie, even though I know 
the truth is easy to check. And shamelessness is when you call me out on it, I'm going to double down and just keep asserting the falsehood. Mm. And maybe we can think of people in public life who do this, uh, but they are out there. So, so I, I think your observation is true for the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. but there are a few people out there that just are, are not uh, tied to the truth mm-hmm. at all and seem to have absolutely, absolutely no problem with saying complete obvious falsehoods and are completely without shame when people try to call them out. And presumably that those would be people with the more narcissistic or, or psychopathic traits. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think uh, both of those could could account for that. Uh, maybe maybe some Machiavellian traits too could could produce something like that. And probably uh, probably the, the the context and the and the motivation for lying would. Uh, well, I guess that wouldn't explain why they're lying frequently. Yeah, never mind. Well, well, there can be. So uh, when I teach deception classes, I have people keep a deception diary, and uh, and I, I pay attention to my own too. But what I've discovered in these diaries is some people who lie a lot do it in a particular situation. So they have a particular job that requires them to tell a particular lie in a particular circumstance. And they do it a lot, but this is the only time they lie. They, they don't you know, lie to anybody else in their life. It's just this kind of one place where the truth doesn't work. Then there's this other group of people who just lie a lot. The, you know, in the extreme case, we've got the pathological liars who lie when the truth would work better for them. And uh, there's not many of those people out there, but if, boy, if you meet one, it's once you figure out what's going on and that there's just no pattern to their honesty or deception, it's, it's really unsettling. Yeah, it, it is. I, I think it's so unsettling, you know, for the, for the fact that, uh, you know, that we do have such a tendency, you know, the truth default, it, it's like, if that's our logical default stance to the world, and then we stumble across people that just have no problem lying, that, that is disturbing at some existential level, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is why bold and shameless lying actually works because most people think mm. nobody would do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, it can't, it can't be happening. No, it can't. No. <laughs> right. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, I think it doesn't that, make sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I, that explains a lot. I feel like of, of people's trust, trustworthiness. Yeah. Uh, so one, one thing I had a question about, I haven't delved into the research enough to, to know this. Is it common to set up a study where someone rates not just whether they think someone is lying or truth telling, but also rates their confidence in whether they're correct. Uh, yes, uh, I wouldn't say it's like super common, uh, but it, it happens enough that there's 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 a good amount of research doing that. Okay, yeah, and I might ask you afterwards if if you have examples of that because the, the thing that strikes me there is like, say you were forced to if you forced me to guess a bunch of poker spots. So for example, if you put a bunch of different, you know, poker behaviors in front of me and said, guess all these things, I think I would have a very low, uh, you know, ability to tell bluffs from value, value hands from, from strong hands. But, you know, and that that's in fitting with my, you know, how I say like the times you'll actually spot something that's meaningful or that, that is reliable are, are pretty, actually pretty rare. So, I, so in other words, if you put all these spots in front of me, I would have low confidence for most of them, but occasionally I would have very high confidence. And if you just judge me on the ones I was, I was high, highly confident on, I think you'd see a significant, a, a significant difference there. And I'm just curious, it seems like s- such a uh, rather obvious way to try to detect if people, you know, the people that are good at, at, tell, at detecting deception in, in whatever situation. And I, I'm curious if you think like 
if that is that a good idea and maybe people should do more of that in these kinds of tests? I, I think it is a good idea when people have some degree of expertise in the in the context and when there might actually be kind of real tells or, or real signal there in some proportion. Right. So when, when there's when there's signal variability and when there's expertise, then that then that can help. So in, in the literature as a whole, there's really no correlation between how white people are and how confident people are. But those generally come from your standard deception detection experiment where there's no real signal there. Yeah, there's no signal. If they're just saying, you know, yeah, yes, I, I, I did this or no, I did this. It's like there's not much signal to these very simplistic ones. It like It's like the more context there is, the more verbal stuff there is, whatever, the more, yeah, the more signal there is, the more likely you are to get something, right? Yeah. So when, when there's a variable signal, right, and you have enough expertise to kind of understand that, then I think confidence becomes very important. So uh, my colleague, Pete Blair, and I, you know, designed this lie detection task and we had it run and, and we didn't know who was lying and who was telling the truth. But we built it so we thought there would be a signal there. And so we're both uh, trying to do lie detection in this with this new set of materials this is a few years back. Uh, what we found is we both got 86% on them. The ones we missed uh, were different. Mm. But we, we were sure about the vast majority of them. But there were four particular interviews that we were uncertain about. And we went exactly different ways on the ones we were uncertain about but we agreed 100% on the four we were uncertain about, if that makes sense. Mm. And it was, it was absolutely what you were saying, right? We knew the ones we might be missing. And we knew the ones we were probably right about. Mm -hmm. And we were absolutely chance at the ones we, where we just didn't see a signal or we saw mixed signals. But where, where the signal we were looking for was there, we kind of, we knew it and, and we got all this right. So is there anything you'd like to add here that we haven't touched on that you think would be interesting to throw in. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, this has been great. Yeah. Th thanks a lot, Tim. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for your work. Very interesting. Uh, your book duped w was great. And uh, you were mentioned in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, talking to strangers, which must've been good for you to get some, some extra attention. That, that must've been exciting. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has been very kind mm -hmm. in dropping my name around. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on, Tim. My pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. That was deception detection researcher Tim Levine. He's the author of Duped, Truth Default Theory and the Social Science of Lying and Deception. I highly recommend that book if you're interested in behavior and deception detection. To come back to the discussion of how poker tells differ from general deception detection scenarios, one anecdote of mine can help us see how different these areas are. In 2013, I was watching the final table of that year's World Series of Poker main event as it was being broadcast. I was live tweeting it. These were players playing for millions of dollars they'd outlasted thousands of other players. First place was $8 million. At one point, a player made a big bet, and another player was thinking for a long time. Based on the bettor's demeanor, specifically their genuine seeming smiling and laughter, I was very confident they had a strong hand. Bluffers can smile, but it's rare for them to have more exuberant and genuine seeming smiles. These are smiles that affect their eyes and that are more dynamic with more movement and looseness. I was so sure about this that I tweeted, if Jay is bluffing here, I'll eat my hat. No way. His opponent ended up calling. He was wrong and I was right. The better did have a strong hand. 
Now, clearly with my PokerTales books and work, I have a lot at risk to make a public guess like that. And it's seldom that I would make such a pronouncement. As I emphasize in my PokerTales work, it's seldom that you can be very confident in a tell. But sometimes I will see spots where I'm highly confident, almost certain that someone is strong or weak. Some of these can be cold reads. Some behaviors are very unlikely with certain hand strengths, even not knowing anything about a player. In other cases, the confidence might come from seeing how someone behaves over several hands so that you get more player-specific knowledge. And so for this example of me correctly and confidently reading that player in the World Series of Poker, we can see that it doesn't have much to do with deception. A lot of tells from players making big bets have to do with them leaking information about how relaxed they are. And some of that has to do with the fact that players who have a strong hand can just be really feeling pretty good about things. They could be savoring the moment, they could even have some tendency to goad their opponent a bit, which can manifest verbally or even with just more direct eye contact or with more irritated or belligerent seeming facial expressions. But these behavioral patterns are not about deception. And there's no equivalent to these dynamics in an interrogation or interview scenario. Most people being interrogated don't suddenly feel great about the situation and happy to be there, whether they're innocent or guilty. To take another example, Another class of tells in poker are related to a player's level of focus or lack of focus. For example, early in a hand, a player who gets a strong hand, let's say pocket aces, will have a tendency to be more mentally focused because they seldom get a strong hand and because they don't want to waste it. They want to play it as well as they can and they know they'll be in the hand for a while. But a player with a weak hand who makes a bet or a raise early in a hand is often less mentally focused. They know they have the option to fold if someone raises them. They know they can always check and fold. Basically, they haven't invested much money in the hand yet. And these dynamics mean that the more loose and ostentatious behavior, whether verbal or nonverbal, early in a hand when the pot is small, will be more linked to weak and medium strength hands and not to strong hands. And those things I've just talked about are also not really related to deception. They're just tells of focus versus lack of focus. Another different thing about poker is that players are constantly going into and out of these highly emotionally polarized, but also short-lasting situations. And that means there's a chance to look for imbalances over time. And a lot of people just aren't that good at being balanced and aren't even trying that hard, especially when it comes to doing that over many situations over many hours, or even days or weeks or months when you play with someone regularly for a long time. And finally, in poker, behavioral information can be valuable even when it's slightly reliable. In poker, you're often put in spots that could go either way from a fundamental strategy perspective. In other words, leaving aside any behavioral stuff entirely, it's often a toss-up whether to call a bet or fold to it. So if you see a behavior you think is slightly more likely to mean one thing than another, that can be valuable in the long term because you're making so many small decisions in poker. So small edges can be very valuable. And there's just no equivalence for these things in interrogation. Interrogators aren't going to change big decisions based on one small behavior they spot. And this aspect of poker doesn't even map over to most other games or sports. And that's because poker involves so many decisions that are based on low information. For example, in chess, there's no equivalent to this because all information is on the table and is known. Whereas in hidden information games, especially versus skilled players, you'll often be put in spots where your decision could go one or two or even three or more ways. And that's one big reason skilled poker players find tells valuable. It's the cumulative effect of these small edges over time. 
I could talk about this for a while, but I just wanted to help make the case that reading poker tells is quite different than trying to detect deception in real-world situations like interviews or studies or speeches. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is to encourage any behavior and psychology researchers listening to do more studying of poker tells, to show that there is still much more to study in poker that hasn't yet been studied. If you find this stuff interesting, check out my poker tells site, readingpokertells.com. I also have videos on YouTube on my Reading Poker Tells YouTube channel. You can sign up for a free email series about verbal poker tells at readingpokertells.com. I wanted to give a shout out and thank you to Alan Crawley, who goes by the online handle SinVerba, which is Spanish for nonverbal. Alan does YouTube videos and classes on nonverbal behavior. I was recently talking to him and he got me thinking again about comparing interrogations and poker. And that was what led to me finding Tim Levine's work and what led to me doing this podcast episode. So thanks for that, Alan. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zachary Elwood. If you like this podcast, please leave it a rating on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to show your appreciation. And of course, please share it with your friends if you've enjoyed it. That's also hugely appreciated. Okay, thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.